0: Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. There are a lot of people who will tell you that Facebook affects their lives in some way, maybe good, maybe bad. but almost no one will tell you a story like Franklin Four. Facebook changed four's life, but it wasn't because of the time he was spending on it. It was because of a guy named Chris
1: When I first met him, he was an enormously appealing figure. He, he was smart, curious. He seemed uh, very literary in
0: his inclinations. That's for talking about a person who, once upon a time, was Mark Zuckerberg's roommate in college. Chris Hughes co-founded Facebook. He became a character in the movie The Social Network, and he made hundreds of millions of dollars off his investment in the company.
1: After Facebook, he'd gone to run Obama's social media during the 2008 campaign, and he was looking for a sense of purpose. And so he was he was uh, kicking the tires of various media properties, and the New Republic happened to be the one that was for sale.
0: So Hughes started learning more and more about this magazine that Four had been an editor of, the New Republic. It's a small publication with lofty ideals and a list of past writers that includes Ralph Ellison and Virginia Woolf. But the story of what happened to it tells us a lot about the strange and maybe worrisome entanglement of tech and journalism everywhere. So back to 2012, when Hughes was kicking the tires on the New Republic and Four, who is the magazine's former editor, saw the state of journalism as a complete
1: mess. Local newspapers started to drop like flies. Newsrooms everywhere were cut. And uh, you had the flourishing of a new sort of media that was chasing clicks. And so when I came back to the New Republic in 2012, I mean, there was this sense that journalism was both squandering its dignity, pursuing a model that was not good for itself or for the society at large. And to top it all off, it was hard to see how it was going to turn around its financial fortunes.
0: Then a savior. Maybe journalism as a whole was in trouble, but all of a sudden, this tiny little magazine felt golden.
1: We were struggling to find our footing in this new media age. And here was a co-founder of Facebook, of social media, who said, look, I have deep pockets. I'm committed to your type of journalism, and I can help you find a way to bridge your history into this new era.
0: Four once again became editor of The New Republic. And things were great. He was hiring people. He was commissioning ambitious writing. He had money, or at least someone had money. But reality was reality. As Ford notes in his book, World Without Mind, the existential threat of big tech. No miracles happened. The New Republic did not become the next Facebook or the next BuzzFeed. And reality came crashing down.
1: And so there became a moment where Chris said, you know what? I'm not prepared to spend this kind of money forever and ever. We need to produce
0: results. What happened then is, to me, what really deserves attention, because it ceases to be about a magazine editor and the co-founder of Facebook. And it becomes a story about what we consume. And it's pretty important to know what's in your diet.
1: So one of the things that this new digital age has introduced to journalism is data that we have analytics that measure our readers all the time. Okay. Um, and there's one device in particular called Chartbeat. It's a tool. Mm-hmm. I had it on my phone. I had it on my desktop. And it was like an odometer in a car that you could – with this needle that was showing you how popular any given story was at any given moment. Because remember – each additional click that you produce for a story is incremental revenue right. for your organization. Okay. And since i i was i was in an environment where we we felt like we really needed to turn around our business in, in fairly short order, uh, you know the, the question was how could we get clicks? And so uh, I would just I would wake up in the morning and I would turn to Chartbeat and I would see how we w- we were performing as I was waking up, and then I would do the same thing. As I got a cup of coffee, and I'd be sitting at, at my desk talking to somebody, but really staring at this uh, this popularity odometer, <laughs> right. watching it sputter, and kind of like felt being like... at
0: a party, and you're kind of always looking over their shoulder to see if like a, totally. a better person <laughs> totally. has come in the <laughs> totally. room.
1: Totally, totally. But for me, it was like I was jud- my self esteem was kind of I felt like mm-hmm. was riding on on the popularity of our stories at any given moment, and what this chart beat suggested was that. Um, if a story wasn't doing well on the web, if it wasn't popular enough, there was some way to fix it. And so you could write mm-hmm. a better headline. And mm-hmm. one thing that journalism is obsessed with right now is testing headlines, that they have these tools that allow them to test dozens and dozens of headlines simultaneously to see what's going to be the one most likely to grab your attention. Or you change Mm -hmm. the photo or, Mm -hmm. you know, you even change the substance of the argument, I'm sorry to say. That Mm. happens happens constantly. And, you know, some of that's just with the headline and the way that it's presented, that if you make something more sensationalistic, it's more likely to grab people's attention.
0: Hmm. I want to follow up on that. I wonder, I mean, You know, I am a consumer of newspapers and magazines, mostly online, not I I don't get most of them, you know, the paper copy. Um, Do you think in every like I just wonder how much this is happening in every newsroom, everywhere people are customizing what uh, is on their website to what people are clicking on, whether that's what's important or what's not. I mean, just give me a sense of how pervasive this is.
1: It is pervasive, and and that's not to say that journalism is succumbing to it in its entirety. And uh, there's, I'm not, I don't want to say that the the profession is uh, is completely rotten because it's far from completely rotten. Mm-hmm. But I do think that this mindset has wormed its way into the profession. And in fact, you know, one thing that I can say in the profession's favor is that. Uh, that there is some increasing resistance. That journalism, I think, understands that it became far too dependent on Facebook, that Facebook was supplying it with far too much traffic, and that journalism was kind of uh, heeding Facebook's every beck and call, Hmm. and that over the long run, um, journalism is going to fail spectacularly if it does that. And so uh you know slowly but surely I think you see newsrooms bravely starting to revolt against Facebook.
0: Mm. Do you think that uh, readers have any sense that like headlines are tested? I mean you talk about headlines being tested 20 times. Right. Like different iterations of a headline to see what gets you to click on it. Like do you think readers know that?
1: No, they have no idea. Uh and, and this is just the way in which journalism reflects the broader online Environment, which is where you're constantly being nudged, you're constantly being tested. Uh, All this data that's being amassed on you all the time is being leveraged to try to influence your choices. And so, journalism is no different than shopping for socks, or um, it's no different than uh, the way in which Facebook itself is constantly trying to manipulate readers to keep them as engaged for as long as possible.
0: Hmm. You know, I wonder um, if you've seen or how much sort of hand-wringing you think there is among editors who, let's say, you know, uh, this is just a hypothetical, but they put out a story, let's say, on on aid to Pakistan and cutbacks in aid to Pakistan, and it's, they think it's really important, has a lot of implications and so on. Um, but but let's just say people are not that interested versus a story you talk about is clearly demonstrably people are interested, the story of Cecil the Lion. (laughs) Right. uh, Right, which just caught fire, was, you know, a really um, magnetic story. Like, if you're an editor and you're looking at a story you think will impact hundreds of millions of people versus the story of Cecil the Lion, important perhaps, but probably not of the same magnitude, what do you – how do you think about this? And and this, of the Cecil line, let's say, is a hundred times more popular.
1: Right. Well, what you're describing is the way in which Facebook um, is kind of leading journalism into this new age of conformism. That the most crucial term in this age is trending. That everybody is trying to latch on to a subject as it's in the process of becoming ubiquitous, in the process of becoming popular, because. Everybody wants to scrape traffic over from it. And Mm -hmm. so in terms of the investments that journalism is making in a very, very macro level, over the course of the last couple of years, all the investments have been really slated towards, geared towards – the, the Facebook-friendly content.
0: Hmm. So I, I got to ask you about this. I, I mean, we, we we were talking with The New Republic about sort of a marriage of old journalism and tech, and obviously the takeover, Jeff Bezos' acquisition of The Post is this like marriage of, you know, new tech and old journalism. Um, but he's also got an editor, uh, you know, Marty Baron, who used to be the editor at the Boston Globe, who is kind of an old school editor. A giant, a giant, and and people, you know, you could argue that this sort of marriage has worked very well for the post. I don't know. Do you think this is a model? Yeah.
1: Well, I think it has worked for the post okay. for the time being. Um, I think that uh, it, and it and it may and it may very well be a model, but I think it's not a great model for a couple reasons. One is, I just think it reflects a way in which power is increasingly concentrated. In this, com- in this country. I mean, Amazon is the largest uh, web services company. It's a massive movie studio. It owns the Washington Post and, and, you know, and so on and so on. And so ultimately, I think, you know, the question is whether it's healthy for democracy to have a small handful of people increasingly in the tech industry controlling broad swaths of media. And... Um, when when the subject is Donald Trump and Be- Bezos is willing to take an adversarial stance to the administration, it works out great. But what happens when the subject becomes Amazon? Because Amazon is, you know, one of the five most essential subjects in American life, just given its its scale and that it's involved in questions about the future of the workplace, about automation, about jobs, about all these things. And, you know, if, if The Washington Post is going to be one of three national newspapers, is it going to simply recuse itself from covering those questions?
0: And how do you feel now when you kind of look out with a little more distance? I mean, you write for The Atlantic. But how do you feel now when you think about 10, 15, 20 years in the future and where journalism is heading? What do you worry about? What do you think is has, you know, maybe po- is maybe positive?
1: Right. So on the negative side of the ledger, I think we can't overstate the disappearance of uh local, local newspapers yeah. and mm-hmm. and 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 local news in the way in which this cru- crucial watchdog against corruption has basically disappeared. Mm-hmm. And um you know, some of the changes over the course of the next decade I think will be painful. Mm-hmm. It's easy to imagine that the New York Times or the Washington Post or God forbid NPR will contract some over the course of the decade and we just got to hope that in the course of managing this next phase of the transition that the transition happens in a prudent shrewd sort of sort of way where the core mission of these organizations is uh is maintained
0: Franklin Ford is a former editor at The New Republic. He is now a staff writer at The Atlantic, and he's author of the book World Without Mind, The Existential Threat of Big Tech. Franklin, thanks so much. Thank you. If this interview grabbed you and you want more people to know about Innovation Hub, take a minute to leave us a review on iTunes. It actually helps other people discover the show. Thanks.